to another episode of Figurisms. I'm your host, Grant Trimble, and in this show, I talk to creatives of all kinds, such as models, sculptors, painters, etc., that utilize nudity in their work. The whole purpose of this is to try and understand with greater depth the message, meaning, and choices behind the people traveling this path to foster a greater comprehension of the use of nudity in the arts. I myself fall into this category. Why people do this can, of course, be very wide-ranging. Despite the long history of this discipline, there still remains many misunderstandings and objections to this practice, so my aim is to alleviate some of the stigmas surrounding this endeavor. In addition, I hope to add some context to the greater cultural dialogue regarding sexuality by challenging how nudity is perceived in our society. In this episode, I talked to Dan Glubizi. Dan got his MFA in printmaking from the University of Cincinnati in 1997 and has been featured in publications such as Vice, High Fructose, and juxtapose for his watercolor paintings. Dan explains a bit more about this unique process and how he arrived at less quote-unquote clunky work, his words, not mine. We also touch on other subjects such as what gives him the spark to create, making objects for private spaces, growing up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the freedoms raising a child has given him, and much more. Over the course of our conversation, Dan's passion and persistence for the arts, art history, and creating are apparent. I can't help but feel this interview only scratches the surface. As a heads up, the conversation ends somewhat abruptly as I forgot to ask Dan when he needed to get going, but it does little to take away from everything that he shares. My suggestion, as usual, is to sit back, relax, and let what Dan has to say sink in. Would you be able to explain your work to all of us? Sure. So I, um, I make works on paper, and those are essentially watercolors. I use acrylics and inks and watercolors on stretched watercolor paper. They're mostly drawings. Uh, I like kind of using watercolors as kind of a coloring way of working. They're not sort of pure watercolor paintings or traditional watercolor paintings. I make collages using collected photographs. Um, Those are done in Photoshop Elements which is about the extent of my digital knowledge. I then use a projector to make drawings from those collages. Sometimes those drawings become the direct painting, and sometimes they'll, I'll draw them a few times um, until because through the process of projecting, uh, things change. So once I have a drawing up on paper, then I mix up some color and make a painting. How did you come, you said that the watercolors weren't traditional. How did you come upon this process? I assume it was evolutionary, but you see kind of where it sort of began. I studied printmaking. And so I really loved the process of developing a preliminary drawing that would transfer to a plate. Uh, and uh, through that process, I I essentially stopped transferring things to plates and just dealt with the preliminary drawing as kind of the final drawing. Um, I also studied painting, but never really loved the 
inside of a painting where you're sort of three quarters through trying to figure out how to finish. So I just loved the drawings and I realized that I could paint the drawings and be done with them. It was a way of, I think, figuring out how to finish artwork. So yeah, so it was a, an evolution over many years. What uh, didn't you like about that inside of a painting? This is an ongoing daily uh, studio struggle uh, for me, perhaps. But uh, I think sometimes I just had trouble finishing paintings. Uh, and for many years, I think I, I held that against myself. Like, oh, I, I can't finish this painting. And, or I didn't want the painting to be finished because then it was going to have to be judged as bad. So I would just, uh, I'm going to jump out now. Um, but I realized it was really when, when my wife was pregnant and I realized that time was going to change, studio time, everything was going to change. But I really, really wanted to figure out this problem of, of finishing things. And so that is when I kind of really went back to how I made a print and how I could apply that to the images that I wanted to make. Um, and I devised a process, a plan for myself, so that I didn't feel lost at the end. It still happens all the time, of course. But, yeah, um, I, I, know, I, I, can, I think I can relate I, to that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I just, um, as, as we all figure out the things that we like to work with, the things that we like to make, um, I was still holding that idea of the painting on canvas as the ultimate goal for me. And it just, it just wasn't happening in the way that I thought it should happen. And when I was able to make that switch to working almost 100% on paper and 100% in this method that I kind of found or... I mean, it, it, it is kind of like watercolor painting, but different in some ways, I think. Yeah. I, I don't build them in the same ways. Mm -hmm. did, did you see yourself as sort of a, a, an artist then at that time with like two disciplines in a, in a sense? No, I just, uh, just a struggling artist, struggling to find uh, a voice that felt really authentic and comfortable and thoroughly enjoying, enjoyable. I mean, it has it, always been enjoyable. There's never, I mean, from I never had a problem of setting up a studio anywhere I lived and getting right to work. I just wasn't making anything that was very good. Then at what point did um, your work start looking like it does now? Is it because of that process? Did it all change or were you still, still dealing with similar subject matter? And in, or how did your process maybe even look the same and how did it look different? Well, I think I was doing thicker painting and building up surfaces, sort of a, a maybe a, a more normal kind of painting on canvas approach or painting on panels, small panels when I was in New York City. The themes of the paintings, there were some similarities. Um, and I would come in and out of working with with that material 
Have you always worked with nude subject matter? Because mo- most of your work now, the majority of it, or what I've seen anyway, seems to deal with nudity. Um, and I know you do portraits and stuff as well, but have you always worked with that? I have, yes. Um, I w- not always as with as much intent as I do now. I think that uh, going back to childhood, actually, this was a sort of theme in the work that I liked and the work that I attempted to make. And then in my mid-20s, I had uh, made a few paintings that I really loved and even had um, in my first New York show in a small gallery, they sold and I delivered them to the collector's home and saw all of this person's amazing erotic art and felt really at home with all of this work uh, and very excited. But then I still couldn't figure out how to make it work. It took almost another 10 years. So what like what year was this? 1999. And so that when did that or, or why did that intent then start? What was it that's kind of clicked? I think that it was Tumblr. (laughs) (laughs) So Tumblr, I think, came, uh, was was born into the world like 2005 or something. Um, And I was always collecting images that I liked uh, from all kinds of sources, ephemera and pornography and art images, they all just sort of went into a file. I really love this image. And it went from being able to find a few images that I liked to millions. And now I'm sure it's in the billions, hundreds of billions. I mean, it's, it's just amazing the amount of images that are available. And as I started collecting them, I started seeing them in my files They almost took shape in the files as I was looking at them. And then as part of my job in working in art galleries, I was able to see sometimes studies by artists. And there was a a group of Tom Wesselman drawings that came through where I was working. And it was a study that he had made for one of the great American nude paintings. So it was a sheet of paper, maybe 18 by 24, approximately. Maybe it had like a dozen or 20 nude busts that would eventually become one of the great American nudes. And they were all kind of in a loose grid. And then the one that he liked, he circled. And then that one became the painting. But they all had this uh, subtle variation. And what I saw in the images that I was collecting, if I was collecting nudist imagery or exhibitionist imagery, is they'd all pretty much be the same, but just subtle differences. The elbow was here, the, the shoulder, the shirt was coming off the shoulder on this side versus the other side in the other picture. So I just kind of lined them up and made some drawings and it felt really good. What do you ever find that that repetition, as you collect all these images and folders and stuff like that, did you ever find that repetition discouraging? I guess in regards to human nature, that 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 there was almost these exact same poses over and over and over again. I guess it 
in a way, when you start seeing those patterns, to me, it sort of loses an element of mysticism. Did you ever uh, feel no, that way? No, I, I felt the exact opposite, that, that we are all united by these, um, united and connected by all of these, just like we all strike the same poses. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, I was seeing that both in, um, so in Tumblr, when I was collecting a lot, it was where you would find these candid amateur images. So there's, I think, a real distinction between a posed picture that is commercially shot for pornography or some other thing, advertising, any other kind of advertising, versus these like just crazy candid shots. And you can really see the difference. And those poses... I feel like sometimes I would see them at the art museum too. You would see some, just, you could imagine artists just seeing their models or walking around, just observing people, just seeing these great poses, natural kind of poses. So no, I think the repetition actually made me more excited about working in this way. Yeah, there is definitely a distinction, like you said, between the professional and the amateur, a lot of times it's a subtle difference. Um, it's sometimes hard to put your finger on. Are you able to distinguish between those things now, especially I think as the internet, it's more involved in our lives. And, you know, I can see definitely uh, people trying to make things like blend this sort of professionalism with this sort of amateurism in a sense. Are, are you yeah, able to... I, I mean... Go ahead. That certainly is the case on Instagram for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's this sort of like, uh, to me, it's always about this balance between like a, a, a raw and refined. And that, you know, even I, I try to capture my own work and, and, and maybe you do as well. But are you able to sort of distinguish what makes something sort of amateur looking and something quote unquote professional looking in these posed ways? I, 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 I think so. I think that it's. Sometimes uh, there's a corniness to the amateur ones, or but it is hard to say. I mean, there are absolutely, you're absolutely correct that, that professional photographers may shoot to look, to have sort of an amateur look. That's certainly, I could think of a few that, that have done that. But no, I think as I collect images, um, I think you can, you can tell the difference. Do you ever get overwhelmed by the volume of images? Every day, yes. <laughs> and I've often considered making my collection of images a closed set and then only working with the images that I've collected to this date forever and not adding any new ones. And then I add new ones. <laughs> so it does. I, that, that idea never sticks. Well, I, I've heard read because I, I read through on, on your website you have a list of places where you've been featured like publications you know it's i think it's under a press link so i i read read through all of those and one of the uh there was a quote in there from you and you mentioned the hunt for the perfect image have you yeah. found that do you feel at certain moments yes of course um and and then it passes, and then you have to look for it again. <laughs> but yes, absolutely, I I will find uh, 
So I'll often start a collage and it will remain unfinished on my desktop for months. And then I will find something. I'll be like, of course, that's exactly where that goes. And, uh, and then a new collage is ready to make a drawing from. So it's almost like a puzzle piece. Absolutely a puzzle piece. Yes. I think of it exactly like that. Are you, are there certain elements then are that you're conscious of that you're looking for, or is it all sort of a subconscious process? No, I mean, I think that there are times where I'm looking for, uh, I mean, I'll do it thematically for sure. So I, I will go, uh, recently I just enjoyed collecting images of men in speedos. So I collected, uh, several dozen and they're just fabulous images from all over the world and just kind of usually middle-aged men of variety of shapes and sizes. And then I kind of, you know, maybe a few of them will find their way into a piece. So with all of this uh, process, why nudity? I love the figure. I think it's the number one thing. I love bodies. Um, and I think as you, you want to make things that are exciting for you to make. Um, I, and it is one of those things that gives me the spark every time. Uh, so I don't find that you want to, that I would want to, uh, maybe challenge that in some ways. It's like, Oh, I really want to keep drawing and painting every single day. And this keeps me excited. And of course, then I am or enjoy, there's the sort of body positive movement and the sex positive movement and sort of all shapes and sizes and celebrating kind of all of our similarities and all of our differences. And that just sort of folds in and in a really wonderful way. Yeah, the, the kind of current climate definitely makes it easier in a, in a sense. Um, I mean, I, I've noticed that for myself, you know, we're working with kind of similar subject matter whenever you're working with nudity. Now it's definitely more accepted than it it used to be, it seems. You know, not, not in all respects, but it has become a little easier. Well, but, certainly with... Certainly with platforms like Tumblr, it's one click away. <laughs> yeah. Well, in like you even mentioned, there, even with Tumblr, there is uh, something that I've, I read that you were saying that, you know, there were, there's these extreme categories where it would be like, you know, like you said, men in Speedos. And there will be entire sites dedicated to just men in Speedos. Or I think one of the examples was like women with um, bongs or something like that, yeah. you know, it would just be yeah. an entire site dedicated to, to these aspects, you know, or these, these, these subjects and stuff. And they would all, you know, you could just see thousands and thousands of images with women or with bongs and men and speedos. And it's kind of an old tradition. I think that people have been doing scrapbooking of popular culture images, you know, for as long as things have been in print, there's these wonderful books with, you know, just some person out there uh, with scissors and glue kind of assembling these archives of images. Uh, certainly, 
clip art and all of those things that graphic designers use. It is one of the incredible things of our time, this sort of crowdsourcing of archives. And one other thing about Tumblr that I've that I find really interesting is that they will vanish though. Um, you, there will be a site that I regularly visit to uh, harvest images or just enjoy uh, the things that have been posted and um, it's gone. Just like just one day it'll just it, vanish. Oh, yeah. And it is crushing, heartbreaking, annoying. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, if I find uh Someone that has, especially with like the nudist imagery, and I find a, a collection of uh, nudist couples on the beach or something. Uh, yeah, I'll collect as many as I can. With kind of collecting these images, there there is still an, an, a social element that's taboo around it. In what way? Well, Explain in. Well, you know, it's just like it basically the implication is for most people when they're looking at pornography online, it's a, it's for the purpose of masturbating, you know, and it, it's not to be, you know, uncouth and all of it. But, you know, it's I think it's very easy for people. And I can say this from even my own experience when, when you say, oh, I'm I'm creating art like I'm with a nude model or, you know, you say you're like looking at stuff online and uh you know, I think the average person would go, yeah, sure, it's for art, you know, I'm wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. they don't quite buy it, so to say. And I didn't know if you've yeah. ever kind of gotten any, um, you know, negative, negative reactions to sort of your process or what you do, or, you know, if there was yeah. a time period where people really questioned whether or not it was legitimate. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I say that I, I really haven't. Um, I guess I, I, I don't make these for average people, so I don't know that I care what they think, I guess. I think that, <laughs> um, that, no, I, I just, I think of more, say, like, uh, Joseph Cornell looking through all of the incredible book bins in New York City and making these incredible collage boxes. and. I just, I find that um, I'm just like a moth to the flame with these images. Well, what is the, I, sorry, I didn't if, sound like you were going to say something. I didn't mean to cut you off. There. Nope. Well, I, I was yeah. just wondering, what it, do you think that there is um, a distinct mindset that one would need to adopt if someone were to say, let me see things the way that you do? Like, what are some of the, the key perspective perspectives that one, one would need to take to see things in the way that you do in that respect? Well, I look at a lot of art. So I'm, I'm often thinking about paintings and sculptures and drawings and photography that I've looked at. I'm definitely not making pornography. I think that I'm not even certain that my artwork is erotic. Um, I, I think uh, oftentimes I think in in more formal terms about the way that the bodies are shaped and um, thinking about rhythm and color and, uh, and the way that the eye moves around. Not sure that answers the question. There. No, well, I think, so this is where, where um, sort of my thought process is. And I think I might've expressed it 
a little bit when I was talking to Shona uh, in a couple couple interviews ago. But it it's I almost wonder um, this perspective that we take as artists at being able to sort of exist in these generally they're natural in one respect, but they're unnatural as far as uh, society goes as a whole. Um, for example, like you're looking through images and there's pornography and nudity and stuff like that. And like in your artwork, like you said, you, you wouldn't even consider it erotic, which I, I would actually uh, agree as well. Like I don't see your work and go, Oh, that's erotic work. It's trying to, the focus is, is sex, so to say, or something close to sex. Yeah. Um, yeah. but that's not the, the average or that's not where, where most people stand in regards to all of this. And so yeah. I, I guess I, I'm curious as to what this process that you sort of take part in and how you see things, how can it benefit other people or how can that mindset, how do you think that maybe it can benefit other people? And I think with Shona, I, I don't, I, I know you said that you, you listened to that one, but I, I don't, know if maybe you remember this and I'm sure I probably expressed it better. Uh, I'm trying to recollect it. <laughs> so, so to say, but, um, yeah, I, I guess the average person could say, well, why would I even care about seeing things this way? Yeah. And I didn't know if maybe you had a, a thought on that or even a response to that kind of, why is it that the way that you're seeing things, why should maybe people challenge themselves to see things that way? Well, I think not just about my work, but with all work, all artwork in museums and galleries, uh, on in street sales and in thrift shops, um, there is something special about a handmade object made at a certain time in history and you can unpack some of the things in that object that relate both to the time it was made, the person that made it, um, and the person that is that you are looking at it and the time that you're in, the place that it's in. As far as the average person, again, I just, I'm not sure they're my audience. I was thinking about this when you were I think there was in in the list of questions, you wrote a question about sort of what is the purpose of your work or what statement does it make to you and others? Mm -hmm. And I'm reminded of this kind of epiphany that I had doing art installation in New York, where you would get to access the most private spaces of a very high level private collection. Um, and it was such an incredible privilege as an artist to see what collectors were living with in their bedrooms and dressing rooms and bathrooms. And I realized that I wanted to make images for those kinds of spaces, private spaces where people sometimes are never even sharing this artwork with their guests. I, I've just, I've, I think I've never really felt that the large white box gallery was what I was thinking about when I make my work. So I think I'm looking for someone that kind of uh, is already interested in some of these themes, perhaps. I'm not necessarily trying to convince anyone of anything. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, no, I think that's that's a, a an incredible place to be, especially when when you know who your audience is. Um, I think that can make it kind of quite a bit easier. I I almost think of this analogy of um of of hunting. I've only been hunting once, and there was uh I went dove hunting, and they said that if you try and shoot for just like the a group of doves, you probably won't hit anything. But if you try and try and hit just one, then you will most likely your chances increase, and then your chances increase even more that you might hit another. So it's like if you know if you uh-huh. you shoot for all of them, you're not going to hit anything. And <laughs> if you go for one of them, maybe you'll get a couple. <laughs> but no, I I think I think that's that's a great place to be, and it's also really interesting, like you said that you're trying to go for people who they're not even necessarily trying to show it to all their friends and family as well. Like you said, it exists in their room and it's something that's sort of uh, private. Is that when that idea formed was when you were seeing these collections or did you always kind of have that sensibility? Well, I think um, in the artwork, I've always liked artwork that wasn't for everyone. Um, And, you know, an early experience growing up in Pennsylvania, um, getting to peek into the Duchamp, uh, Etan Denis. Of course, that's in a public museum and everyone can look in, but there, there is this moment when you're a kid sort of looking at that and realizing that while you're looking at it, you're the only one looking at it. And um, I just really loved that feeling. What? I think that I would always... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Um, that I've always, I think, so I grew up um, in an artistic household. So my, my dad was making paintings and drawings that when I was a kid and still does every day. There were a lot of figure drawings in the house and uh, nude models were common. And I think it was just something that it was around me um, as a kid. Did, actually, that's what I was going to, the question I was going to ask you, I, I read that your your father was, or is an artist, and you even remember at one point that, I could be making this up, I could be confusing with someone else, but do, did people, like, were you made fun of the fact that there were nudes in your house, or that there were models that came in, you know, it almost became a point where you, you were conscious that other people knew of it? Oh, like, Absolutely. Um, there was, uh, my father painted my mother nude when she was pregnant with my brother. So I would have been about third grade and then the painting would have been finished around the fourth grade. And it was a big painting. It was life-size painting. So this painting would have been, uh, or I may have talked about it to kids. I don't know, but, um, in like a way that was normal. When you were talking, I mean, it was to totally your... normal. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, it was totally normal. But, but then, I have to say that that I, I feel like I learned pretty early, or had a good group of friends as a kid, that um the 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 kids that would make fun of me for that, they just weren't going to be my friends. So, they just weren't my people. Yeah, you were okay with that pretty early on. Um, you know, I struggled like everyone does in middle school, but. Uh, no, I had, you know, enough early experiences with the kind of 
art-minded families to know that there were enough people like me out there. Did your dad, was he a professional artist like you as well, or was he, did he kind of do that on the side? When I was a kid, he worked to support the family um, and painted in the evenings and in the daytime, like, you know, when, whenever he could. But he did become a professional artist, and that was is just immensely inspiring to see the struggle and know that you do it anyway. You, you sort of, you find a situation that works and you keep at it. And we are very close friends and we talk about the struggles and successes um, very often. They have kind of a, a mentor there that's uh, pretty accessible. Absolutely. And he was pretty young. My parents were, were pretty young when they had me. So um, now they're only about 20 years older than me. Uh, so we have a lot in common. You just have one sibling? One sibling who is uh, about nine years younger. Yeah. Okay. What, what, did, um, what did your mom do? Was she artistic as well? I mean, she seems like she would probably be at the very least supportive. Very supportive. She was artistic, younger, and became a teacher. Yeah, we were family vacations, always included museums, trips to Washington and Philadelphia and New York City. I think that it was all just really, it was encouraged. The, the making of things was encouraged. Is your brother, is he artistically a musician? Inclined? Okay. Yeah, musician. Yeah. So you guys are I think he got more, I think he got more of the left brain out of the, out of the deal. Because <laughs> I think he can, he does music. I think he can do the math. I can't do the math. Yeah. You, you kind of all understand each other's level, at least, you know, yes. like it's, and can even commiserate. Oh, that's, that's really cool. As we were talking about earlier, you know, I, I always think it's interesting to see, you know, and to understand even people's backgrounds, um, you know, especially in, in regards to their work. And uh, one of the questions that I know is even on that list that I sent was, you know, at what point was your perspective formed about nudity and did it change or did it evolve? Because, you know, yeah. some people, it, it's, there's a, it's very taboo the uh these these elements uh, you know of of nudity and sexuality and stuff and you know people some pe people are able to kind of break away from it and so i'm always kind of curious you know what this son of the situation was surrounding or i guess what it looked like as a child so it seemed like it was fairly positive i had an incredible memory or i have an incredible memory of being on a nude beach in california in the mid seventies, I was maybe kindergarten age and it was a river north of San Francisco. And it was just incredible. I just loved it so much. So that was sort of an early memory of sort of adult frolicking nude. Then as a child, I had a friend whose dad had all kinds of playboys. And we looked at them together, and it was just that it felt very much like the nude beach. It's, it didn't feel taboo. And then, yeah, then you go through the sort of long, drawn-out period of childhood where you're just kind of learning how to be a person. I think that it wasn't 
again until maybe high school that I met my people, my friends that were interested in kind of all the weird stuff that I was interested in. And you were able to sort of bring back those, maybe those feelings from that you even experienced as a child. And Absolutely. You were able to bring them back. Yeah. Oh yeah. There was all kinds of great, like weird bookshops in my hometown. And, um, I worked at a restaurant in high school and it was a, just a great mix of, uh, gay men and gay women and all just, it was just great. I mean, everyone was just, uh, it was wonderful. I had a, a lot of good friends and, and I'm still friends with, with several of those people. Where do you think that your parents even had that? Where do you think that progressiveness even came from? Well, they were, they were coming out of uh, the late sixties. So they were kind of mid seventies hippies kind of, uh, <laughs> um, yeah. I think it's just that, that, that looking for the new way. I don't, I don't know. Were they think, religious at all? I think that, uh, yes and no. Um, we, I think they were raised going to church, but I don't know that either of them felt extremely strongly about it. We, we went to Quaker meeting when I was a kid and again, you just end up around like progressive educated people that I know that Jesus and God was involved, but <laughs> it wasn't a big part of the reason I felt like we were going. Was it uh, more so, I guess, for the community rather than, I guess, the spirituality, so to say? Yeah, I guess so. I, I mean, it just seemed like the, the people at Quaker Meeting were much like all of the friends that they had throughout all parts of their lives. When, uh, when you say Quaker Meeting, I assume that's um, Quakerism, right? Would that be yes. the right word? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Huh. I, I don't know if I... Is that any... Does that come out of what is it like that the Anabaptists? I'm, I'm just trying to think of what that would be similar to because I don't know if I know any Quakers. Was it Anabaptist? I don't know. I mean, I, so I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is where the Amish and Mennonite are. William Penn, who is you know sort of bought that land that became Pennsylvania, was Quaker, and if there were already Quakers there or if he invited Quakers to come, but uh, it's the, the services do not have a um, preacher. So people sit in silence and then are moved to speak. I was a kid, so I was in Sunday school, which was really fun. We would, it was really painful to sit in silence and with a group of adults. So (laughs) I think we came in like, we came in either like 15 minutes or maybe even 10 minutes at the end. And I remember there just being like some really, some people would stand up and say some Looney Tunes shit. <laughs> but I mean, really kind and amazing people like, uh, yeah, lots of activists. I remember they were always protesting something. Yeah. I have been to a, uh, drawing a blank now, you even mentioned, even mentioned it. Not the Amish, but what was the other religion? That the, Menon- the Mennonite. Yeah, the Mennonites. I have been to a Mennonite service. So is it probably yeah. similar to that then? No, I think it's, I mean, I think the Quaker meeting that I went to was very different, very progressive and liberal. The Mennonites are, at least in my hometown, 
are very conservative. In fact, Lancaster, Lancaster, Pennsylvania is very conservative, um, which is why I don't live there. I, I don't think I would feel comfortable living there. Although there's many fine people that, uh, you know, there's several colleges and there's all kinds of interesting things happening there. But, you know, just that hometown thing, you know. Yeah. Um, but Charles DeMuth, the American modernist, lived there. He spent a lot of time in New York City. He was part of uh, a really cool circle of artists, George O'Keefe and Stieglitz and Marzen Hartley. And, but he made all of his paintings in Lancaster. And he would occasionally like to make fun of the sort of backward, conservative nature of the Amish and the Mennonite. But he still lived there. He liked it enough to stay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a beautiful sort of revolutionary war, civil war era town. So it's it's very pretty. I'll have to check it out. I don't I don't know too much about that. But yeah, I, I mean, my wife is from, she's from upstate New York, uh, Albany area. And I know there is, there are some areas where there's, uh, it's probably somewhat similar. So then you, you um, went from growing up in an atypical household where you know your parents were seemed relatively open but you said you were able to find kind of a group in high school and really connect and not that you didn't feel like an outcast but at least you had a kind of a close group of people at what point yes. did your art career or did you, your focus on art really start becoming a thing i think in undergraduate college um i in high school i was always in the art class i think everyone sort of knew me as the kid that likes to make art, but I don't think I made that conscious decision to be an artist until undergraduate college. I think I was pretty insecure and maybe am to this day about how I came to art through my father. And I mean, it's totally normal throughout art history that art would be a family business. But I think right now in the world we live in, Maybe the artist is supposed to, you know, come to it through feeling like an outsider or something. And it just wasn't the case for me. I was just exposed to it from the very beginning. But you still have to make that kind of conscious choice. I'm going to do this. So it happened over several years where, um, you know, you try out some different things or you have some, some, some good years and bad years. But, but pretty much by the end of undergraduate college, I knew that that's what I was going to be doing. What did your work look like at that point? I was heavily into figure drawing and printmaking. I figured uh, that I would um, teach college. So I went directly to get an MFA at University of Cincinnati at uh, 22 years old and, and really thought I would do printmaking, learn how to become a figure drawing instructor, and teach drawing at a college. A very pragmatic uh, approach to all of it. It felt very, like, right on. Like, I'm going to do this. And I became a TA, and I don't want to say I was miserable because I really do enjoy talking to students about art. I just could not imagine it doing it every year, every year, every year. And I saw my fellow classmates who were also TAing, it just seemed so natural for them to get their class kind of herded into making drawings in a certain way. And 
I really enjoyed the process of exposing my students to new artists or telling them about weird things that they hadn't heard of before. But the idea of getting a group of 15 or 20 students to shade in a certain way, uh, no, I could not <laughs> see myself doing that. And then there's politics involved in becoming a teacher that I didn't feel that I was going to be able to do. Um, there was a, a professor from another school came to DAP and said, look, if, if you want to teach, you're going to find a job somewhere. But if you are less than 100% sure that you want to teach, just know that you're competing against people who are like 150% sure that they're going to teach. And I really wanted to live in New York City. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to move to New York City. I'm not going to worry about applying for teaching jobs or even like just the thought of creating a CV and going to all the conferences. And it just didn't seem like the right path. What, what was it about it that didn't seem like the right path? Was it just like kind of, a, did it make you cringe just thinking about it? Or do you, do you know why? Yeah, I guess well, specifically? It, 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 well, I really enjoyed interacting with students, but the majority, I liked the students that were struggling and I liked the students that were naturals. And then the majority of the class are just kids taking the class. Of course, you have to treat everybody the same. I just couldn't imagine like doing that year after year. So I feel I did feel very bad about it, actually, because I thought like I was meant to do this and then I had to not do it. Um, and then the politics of teaching maybe seemed like it was not something I was going to be capable of doing. Was this uh... like getting like getting the jobs? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you knew, we're, I mean, so I'm just, I think of myself, like if I were in that situation, cause I've, I've run into, I've run into play like times where I've tried to convince myself that no, 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 I'm, I'm, that's, I'm just being, um, picky about it or something like that. I mean, was there's, was there like a lot of tor turmoil at this time for you or was it just kind of like, um, I don't know if I really like this. No, I don't really want to do it anymore. Uh, goodbye kind of teaching world. And did you like struggle with this and, decision? I mean, I, I had only been a TA, so I can't say that I was fully involved in the teaching world, but it was enough of a taste to know that I didn't really want to go any further. Um, so no, it wasn't a very difficult decision. I packed up the car and moved to New York city and, uh, and and became a security guard at a museum. Oh, and w yeah. what year was this? This was 90, probably in the mid... 90, 98. 98, okay. 90, yeah, like 97 to 98. I, yeah. Okay. And uh, it was a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which now, was... I have, uh, I have to ask you before we move on to New York City, because you're in Cincinnati, yeah. I'm from Cincinnati. I like to yeah. think that maybe we... Uh, you know, I'm. I was pretty young at that point, but maybe we crossed paths at a coffee shop or something like that. Like at, do you remember, um, Caldi's or I don't know if like the Buzz. Is that that's the one? Uh, like, in is it over the Rhine or downtown? Yeah, area or yeah it's like, not there yeah, anymore. Was, but yeah, that that yeah. place, Caldi's. I definitely went there. Yeah. yeah, I went there. So I'm sure yeah. we we probably met. So let's just let's settle on. <laughs> <laughs> 
no but uh yeah that's kind of funny just thinking of like yeah all the all those places and stuff like that but um yeah so so anyway no i just i did that for my own amusement but I, i'm sorry yeah no <laughs> but that's, uh I, and i think that the the cincinnati art museum is incredible and the the that kind of frank duvenek whole scene of 19th century kind of way of seeing the world. I just, oh, I love the so many paintings in that collection and I loved going to that museum. Yeah. It, it is a beautiful museum. Uh, it, yeah. I try to get there, especially take the kids and stuff, try to get there every so often, but, but um, yeah. So, so then, uh, <clears throat> then you started working in a museum as a security guard. What, yeah. What? Why New York City? I mean, was I guess that might seem like a somewhat obvious answer, but was there anything in particular other than it's just New York City? Uh, well, it it was sort of the focus of my life uh, as a teenager. We would go there quite often to see art shows. Um, we had some family there, and. I was interested in punk rock music, so sometimes I would get to go to New York for a show. And the East Village just was my ideal place in the world. Uh, I loved walking around there and thought, I am going to be an adult here. Um, what I, and I to this day love that feeling, but New York is changing all the time. So by the time you get there, it's not the East Village that you remember from when you were a teenager. Uh, it's something different. It's something interesting, but it's not the same. And so that happened several times to me throughout. I lived in New York City twice where you're like, oh, I was coming for this thing. And then this other thing was there. I'm, I'm sure that if I went to New York City now, it would be a completely different city than the one I remember. Yeah, the, yeah, the one you've experienced and knew intimately. Yes, where I have to say my hometown, my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is not that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not progressing a at a rapid pace. <laughs> no. <laughs> with the with, parts, with the Quakers and the Mennonites and the, yeah. <laughs> there is an art school in Lancaster now, and I could definitely tell the ch the change. There was a lot of cool stuff going on, but no, no, not like, um, yeah, I was very focused. You know, my dad was interested in a lot of the artists that were showing in New York. When I was in high school, we would go to see shows, specific shows. We'd drive the three hours, park in Soho, go see the shows. Which, for example, what, what are some examples of the shows? I, um, the painter Eric Fischel would have been one that we would have gone sp specifically to see and uh and i think what's really interesting is that those are still really a lot of the similar themes that i love of the kind of uh that kind of nudity those kinds of spaces that he paints um yeah one of my favorite artists so now you're in new york city and you're able to kind of be in it all the time not just travel uh, every so often. What did your time look like there in New York? Lots of museum visits. Of course, I was spending full time at a museum, which was a 
really incredible way to decompress after art school. Um, you know, you're in the art studios making things, but to stand in the galleries with the paintings and sculptures and other objects for that many hours, it's a pretty incredible uh, feeling. You know, I was just starting out trying to see everything. Yeah, I mean, New York City is is crazy. I, I lived there twice, and I think about the first time and the second time, all of the things I did right, the things I did wrong. It's 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 super complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah. then, when when was the second time that you uh, lived there? You so say this was like ninety seven, ninety eight to what years? Yeah, in two thousand one, I. Um, I moved to Boston and worked at Harvard University at the Fogg Museum in the exhibitions department. So after leaving the Met, which was low paying, I discovered that I had uh, an interest and skill in art handling. So I installed art shows, moved art around the city, and eventually landed this position at at a museum in Boston. And I would say that professionally, that was the first time that I really felt like where I was somewhere where I belonged and uh, absolutely loved every minute of it. I think that all, all of the people I worked with were artists. We were all had our little studios and we were kind of doing the best that we could. And it was, yeah, just one of those incredible times in your life. So when when you say art handling, I, I assume that's quite literal. You would actually take the pieces and secure them and move them around the city. Is that? Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a really. It's a common job for artists. Um, almost all of my colleagues were artists throughout the fifteen years that I considered myself an art handler. Um, and yeah, I mean from. Every single aspect of the process of artwork being at artist studios or warehouses, galleries, auction houses. Sometimes you'd work for a gallery. Sometimes you work for a warehouse. Sometimes you work for an auction house. But yeah, you're the person. You and your colleagues are the people that create the things, move the things, install the thing, make sure it's safe, light it. And then... Uh, that's where I had these moments of getting to deliver artwork to collectors' homes in New York City and in Los Angeles or in Florida. And I feel like you see art in an entirely different way than when you're in the white box gallery or even the museum gallery. I think when you see a work of art in someone's home, it's very much alive. And it was a very powerful feeling and very inspiring to get to work in the studio. Because you see it where it actually was made to really kind of exist in a, in a sense. Or a... Well, you don't, I don't necessarily know if the objects were made to be in homes. I mean, certainly some of them were, but like, um, I remember just saying, having like a really incredibly powerful experience with an Alex Katz painting that was in you know, somebody's house and you're just like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I have to get to work right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and I do wonder if you have that same feeling 
when it's on a giant wall in some exhibition space. The painting was in the house, you know? People were, like, living around it. And it was really alive. It was cool. So then is that, that seems to be almost what you're trying to capture in your work. Like you said, you, you're, you're doing it for very, almost kind of a very specific clientele or a type of person, so to say. And it's, it seems that might've left a big impression on you. I, I could be wrong. No, I, that. I think, I think that that's exactly right. That I, I would like to make objects that find their way into people's private daily lives. Yeah, that that almost remind that reminds me of um, so often you know we experience art and it is on on the screen on our our screens you know it's it's backlit I think you've even mentioned that and some and some of those articles it's all backlit and it can all look very nice and pretty and and the way that we're consuming it it's incredibly it's a very at a very rapid pace uh, which you know doesn't really quite give it it justice. Um, but it reminds me of a story of, so one of my favorite artists has always been Matisse. And I think that, I'm pretty sure it was him that he's, I was reading a story that he actually purchased, um, saved a bunch of money and purchased, uh, I think it was a a Van Gogh. And that was like one of his prized possessions. And he said he had it on his wall and he would just look at that piece and there, there might have been another piece that he, he had purchased so he had like two you know real pieces from artists hanging on his wall and that's something that most people don't experience and yeah. you got to see that you know day in and day out it seems like yes it made a big impact for sure yeah that's and you think of now how most what most people when they think of art it's all on their you know it's on their phones. Do you, do you find that sad in, in any way? or Personally, I do, because I, when I lived in New York or Los Angeles, I would see art all the time, go to galleries and museums, and I don't do it as much now. Um, I, there's a different pace to my life, and I certainly go see my friends' shows here in Portland or visit the museum, but I do not go to art shows the way that I used to when I was younger. But I'm in my studio more. And I think that that's sort of one of the things that um, it was important to recognize about 10 years ago, that you could live in New York City and be a part of the art world and see all the shows. But if you do not have that time to make the work, if that's something that you really want to do, something has to give. And it was very scary for me because I really identified myself with those big cities. But now I identify myself with my studio, and it's an incredible feeling. And then you lived in L.A., you mentioned, uh, I know when we first started talking. Right? Is that, I did, is that and right? that is uh, where I met my wife and why my child is on the planet. <laughs> So uh, it was, uh, I think, after uh, sort of the short story of Harvard Art of the Fog Art Museum was I loved the work, but living in Cambridge didn't seem like a full life uh, for me. The, it, it's a pretty small area, and 
Um, working on a college campus, you end up feeling like you're going to get older, but everybody around you is going to stay the same age. <laughs> um, and the exhibitions department, I, I think you could, you could live an entirely wonderful and fulfilling life installing art shows at the Fog Museum for your entire career. I just didn't, it just didn't feel like something I could do. I just needed to adventure a little bit. And so when I had an opportunity to explore Los Angeles, I definitely jumped at it. I worked at museums, installed artwork. And in Los Angeles, I had more time. It was a little bit cheaper to live there at that time. And I was able to get the studio that I envisioned for myself up and running a little bit more. I still was making pretty clunky things, but I felt like maybe for the first time that I was really happy in my own studio. When you say you were making clunky things, what do you mean? They were bad. So what is your perspective of the art that you were doing at this time? So as you're working and installing art and working in all these galleries and being exposed to, you know, priceless pieces, then you would go to your studio. In, in my mind, I'd, I'd almost, it'd be kind of depressing, like be like, oh my gosh, like you see how far you have to go, especially compared to masters. Uh, what was that time in, in your studio? What, what did that look like through all those years? I, I mean, your example of Matisse looking at the Van Gogh is, is more accurate, which is that I didn't find it depressing. I found it actually very exhilarating and energizing. Um, anytime I would visit an artist's studio through, the, through a gallery or I just wanted to see everything, how they were doing it, what, what made it all tick. Um, I loved seeing behind the scenes. Uh, no, I found it all energizing. And, and I think the only thing that the art world working as in the support staff of the art world one of the dangers, and I definitely suffered from it at various points, is a kind of cynicism. Not about talent, not about quality, but just you realize how hard it is to succeed and how the people that succeed are such super talents. Not that you're not loving what you're making in your studio, but sometimes you can recognize like, oh, right. They're really, really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a long way to go. Yeah. But I think I was able to balance that at the same time with like, oh, no, it's still really exciting to try, to make stuff, push it. Like, I'm going to try this way of making it, this way of making it. Um, and I think that that drive was always present, even if I was suffering from some cynicism. Do you attribute your success and kind of where you are to that drive? Yes. You, I mean, you just, I mean, certainly I've had many little lucky breaks and I think that there's never going to be one big break. There's going to be lots of little breaks. Um, and you don't know where they're going to go, but I think that I love being in the studio and it's, it's like my job and my hobby at the same time. Yeah. As you're talking about that, there's definitely been moments of those kind of realizations when you real, when you understand how far it is you need to go and you understand why the greats are so great. And I remember when I, I first started playing music and, you know, it, you get better and better and better. And there seems to be a point that you reach 
where you go, yeah, I, I got this. Like, I've kind of figured it out. And then usually something happens where you realize how bad you are, or not really necessarily how bad you are, but how good other people are. And for a moment, I can say for myself, it, you know, it kind of destroys your world a little bit, or maybe your ego, you know, not in an unhealthy way at all, but you just realize like, oh my gosh, like, I'm, I'm really not good at all. And, and that's where, you know, the true learning seems to begin is when, you know, life kind of humbles you and you, you accept where you are and that it's, you know, just a infinite path to kind of travel down. And I think that's where the great artists, they've accepted that, okay, I'm cool with the fact that I'm never, ever going to be perfect or, you know, everyone knows that to a degree, but I'm fine with not being perfect at this and not being a, a quote unquote master, you know, uh, that it's, there's always just that journey of kind of becoming. Yeah. Yeah. I I wouldn't say that there's uh, really anything, any such thing as uh, a master. I think that, yeah, it's always just the sort of journey that, that each person is on. Um, But, but, but for sure, I mean, one of the great things of going to museums is to uh, engage with, with those people that excel at their craft at the highest level. It's very inspiring. At what point then did you feel like you started hitting your stride with, with your work? You, you know, you mentioned the, it being clunky. When did it stop feeling, when did it stop feeling clunky? Right around, (laughs) it's going to, it's going to sound totally obvious. Right around the time that I stopped working full time, I, I was able to stay home with our child when she was an infant. And of course, it's a very challenging and exciting job to have an infant. But what I found was that I was so tired after doing 50 hours at the gallery that it was really hard to even think. But after doing a full week or long days with a baby, but I could still think. I was home. I wasn't like carrying heavy crates everywhere or getting yelled at by this person or that person about some artwork that wasn't where it was supposed to be. It was very demanding to have, uh, you know, be the primary caregiver for a, for an infant and newborn. But I felt like I had more time to think about art than I ever did before. And I think that I used that time well. And then we moved to Portland and all of a sudden I had a larger studio and it just, things started happening. I don't know. I think I also was able for the first time to edit out a lot of things I had been working on and realize, okay, I tried that idea over and over and over again. I don't have to do that idea, but it just took a long time for me. And I think that that's a, was a, a big deal to realize that maybe I am a late bloomer and that it took me 20 years to get to here and and I'm so happy about it. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, you, your work definitely, it, it stands out. Hearing all this, you can tell it, it is, it seems to very much be a testament to just persistence. And, uh, and obviously, you know, you have a, this, uh, a, I guess a, a discerning eye, you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're able to be around all these 
incredible pieces of, of work, even as, as a kid growing up around a father who was creative and, um, you know, that you, it seems like you, you know, you admire, uh, not just probably as a person, but even his, his art as well. And For sure. just to, to be able to just keep going at it. I think that there's that in itself is there's a, a story in that, you know, just, um, yeah, I think the, I think another big component to, um, my feeling of personal success is the relationships that I've maintained throughout my adult life. I am still in daily contact with my closest friend from college and my art friends that go back 20 years are still the kind of people that I rely on both as uh, encouragement and then just to, to see the hard work that they're doing. Um, I, I think in some ways, like the, the shame of letting your friends down keeps me going. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. That, I think that's positive. If, yeah. <laughs> if, if my best friend knew that I like wasn't working hard in the studio, he would yell at me. And <laughs> that's good. Um, and I think, keeping those kinds of relationships in your life is really important. It's, it's, uh, well, yeah. there's an accountability there and it's, you know, it's, it's not, not just you, you know, we're, we're social beings and it's, it's, we don't live autonomously. You know, and I, I think that that kind of speaks to that. I think also the art, art is a social business. So, uh, the professional aspect of it is you have to keep up your relationships. And I think you, you meet someone on a job site 10 years ago in New York city and, and they're an interesting artist, an interesting person, and you do your best to maintain that relationship because artists will help one another. And it's a really, that's been actually one of the, the most wonderful things about Instagram is uh, I feel like I have, a bunch of wonderful colleagues that I can reach out to. Yeah. And at your fingertips all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just, I find that like, I do complain about Instagram in that the way that we look at art has changed for sure. But the positive feedback, the sort of applause therapy aspect of it is very good. It's very good for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. then what are some of the challenges that you face now then in, in creating? Well, now I feel when I was working in the art world, in the galleries, I always wanted to be a professional artist. I didn't really know what that meant, but I wanted to feel that I was a professional artist. Now I am a professional artist and it is very difficult. So balancing, balancing the budgets, making sure that I meet my deadlines staying positive about my ideas, reaching out for new opportunities, all of the nuts and bolts of operating a professional artist studio. It's a daily challenge that I find very exciting, but um, it's, it's real. Who is there to help you with that? I, it sounds like you know your wife, she's a significant part of, not to say necessarily, I don't know, work is the right word for it, but She's a seems to play a significant role in support anyway. Does she support you in those aspects 
and does she help you kind of with running things in that way? Well, yes. I mean, I think that uh, I'm also still looking after our child and, you know, I sort of found a balance that works where I contribute as much as I can. I kind of, my, my, my studio practice is kind of like a full-time job that is kind of, kind of gets paid like a crappy part-time job, but I love it so much that it's, uh, it's absolutely great. But yes, um, we are, we are family and uh, certainly would go back to work if it was necessary, you know? Yeah. Well, I was thinking even just about, like you said, the kind of the nuts and bolts of, because I mean, being an artist, it's, it, it really is about running a business or a brand in a, in a sense. And as much as I think artists may not like those terminologies, um, you know, there, the, the, there's definitely similar elements and they might not exist in the same way, say like, uh, obviously Nike would do it, but you right. know, there, there still are kind of fundamental aspects of, you know, like marketing, like you have to get your stuff out there somehow. And you know what I mean? Just like, there's a lot of very practical things that you have to do that go, that go beyond just simply making art. Absolutely. And yes. that is, I mean, I find that to be, that's the most overwhelming aspect of all of it. <laughs> you know, my, yeah. making art is, is hard enough in itself, but then like thinking of all of that stuff on top of it, it's just like, oh my gosh, like no wonder why people had, you know, like musicians have managers and, you know, there's all of that stuff. It's, that's difficult. And, and I have galleries that work very hard for me and I am very grateful for that, but you still have to do a lot on your own. and that's that's just part of it and you just you chip away every day and you know sort of any little success you sort of have to bask in it <laughs> yeah yeah take it in you brought this up before but um success like do you what does that look like to you staying in the studio i would say <clears throat> is sort of my number one way sort of getting to do it in a daily way Staying healthy to kind of be able to do that. I think that's sort of, you know, you, you sort of maintain the ability to do it, I think. So, and then outward success, like I always want more shows. I want, like to uh, engage with different audiences. Of course, you want all of those things. But I think that the real success of it is the way that you feel in the studio, that you're in the studio and that it feels very current and um, fresh and, and that you're challenging yourself, but also feeling um, the rhythm and comfort of approaches to making that keep you going. There's a, a really amazing thing that I listen to often by an artist named Teresita Fernandez. And she did a commencement address, I think at Virginia Commonwealth. And she talks about this very thing of this sort of idea of inward and outward success. And I really feel that I felt it where you are in the studio, in that zone of making or looking or planning for something, and you really think 
wow, this is, I'm really doing this. This feels great. So I highly recommend that her commencement address for you and yeah, I'll, I'll definitely have to check that out. Yeah. No. So then, as you, as you're in the studio and you're you're making and you're creating, you, you mentioned that earlier that you aren't really doing it for everybody. You have a sort of a, a specific um, person or you know a group of people in mind. Are how much is that defined? That that person or that entity? It's pretty loose. Yeah. I think it's pretty loose. I think that uh, it's not like um, a man between five ten and six. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't know if you if you because uh, there was someone um, this writer that I, I listened to one time and they said that one of their recommendations is or when they say they write something they have basically four people that they have in mind as as to who they're writing this book for. It's like people that they personally know. And like when they yeah. write a book, they go, if I get off track and I start thinking of, you know, I'm writing this for the general public or for, you know, some, um, something that academic there, you know, like it's not going to turn out. It's like these four people are who I'm, I'm writing this for. And that's where sort of, that's where I, I really kind of, uh, their success kind of comes from is the more they're able to hone in on that, the more it's able to really be very powerful and strong. I didn't know if you had uh, something similar. I have those people, um, but you, you no, don't have I'm to tell. Always... You don't have to tell me. <laughs> yeah, I'm not always making the work for them, but uh, yeah, but but for sure, there are, there are I have very trusted people. Yeah, and then when you're making your work, because a, a lot of it does revolve around nudity. What is it that you're trying to give to them? Well, I think that some of the source material, the original source material, is not something, it's not really enjoyable for everyone to look at. And yet I find that I can sometimes filter it in a way that people can see what I see. And so then that's sort of my goal, if, if that I can... Um, say someone is i never i i would hate to look at this kind of image as a photograph but the way that you draw and paint it uh i see the beauty or the or the interesting pose or the rhythm with these other figures i think that's kind of what i'm going after kind of translating some of these images out of that out of one world into another world what is it about working with images that revolve around nudity what what is there something specific that you're trying to draw and show people well i think it's the spark again of what draws me to the studio or what draws me to look at images uh, i really like that material and um, enjoy sharing it with other people i think that there is uh, a kind of uniting quality of of some of these images uh especially the images of the nudist couples kind of embracing at the water's edge. This is non-sexual nudity. These are people just uh, being human together. And they're, I find them to be really beautiful images um, and really fun to work with. 
Well, that, that even just reminds me what you brought up when you said you were younger and you went to a nude beach. Um, it seems somewhat similar. Like you said, non-sexual nudity, There, there is like an, an element of liberation in it. And uh, I don't know, I, I, I think there's a, a joy that a lot of people probably, they miss a lot of the times. Perhaps, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think that uh, some of the folks that connect with my work, I think they, I think they see it. And that's, that always makes me very happy. One of the things you mentioned specifically, especially Tumblr, uh, one of the things that I I didn't like about Tumblr was when people would take my images and recontextualize them, which would yeah. ultimately change the dynamic of the image. And that's something that really kind of bothered me. What your work almost does is it takes what people do on Tumblr, which is sort of recontextualize images in, in their own way, you know, like you said, almost like it's a, in a way, a tradition of scrapbooking, but you know they'll they'll recontextualize images to sort of fit what they want. What you almost seem to be doing is then recontextualizing their recontextualization, and <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like what I I you know the more I started reading about you and finding out, and the more I would look at your work and you know know that it was especially being sourced from specifically Tumblr. That there is that very much seemed to be like what you were doing in return. Um, and, and doing it in a way too, like your, your work and your figures are, um, I guess the way that I would put it are, are very symbolic of people, obviously, rather than being uh, literal. And the, the way that I almost think of it is if you were to ask someone to draw a heart, they would draw a symbol of a heart, right? You know, with like the two bumps that come down into a point. Um, yes. And, and that's very much, our, our brains like to work in that function, I assume, because it's about efficiency. But, um, you know, if you ask, were to ask someone to draw a heart, they wouldn't draw a literal heart. They would draw a, a, a symbol of a heart. And your work seems to kind of um, play on that uh, kind of, this utilizing or, or creating figures as sort of symbols. I, I didn't know if I that. Like, I like that. Oh, th- well, I, I didn't know if that was something that, um, you know, if 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 that w- if I was even accurate in any way of, <laughs> you know, seeing it as that. But uh, I didn't need, well, know if. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, um, to answer or to comment on this, uh, I'll say that. In my first time around in New York City, I went to a lecture by the painter John Curran. He was lecturing at the same time with Lisa Yuskovich, uh at uh, the New York Academy, like the New York Figurative Academy or New York Academy. Anyway, John Curran and Lisa Yuskovich, one of my favorite artists. And John Curran was talking about how all artists had to sort of come to terms with photography. And... He may have gone on to talk more about that point, but that just, I mean, I think that was in 99. So like that has really, really stuck with me. And um, as a collector of images, since I was a kid, I always saw that I was collecting the image, but I was also collecting the piece of paper that was the image. And so of course, when you get into art school, you learn about photorealism where the person is, 
the artist is painting the photograph that has the image on it. Like they're not painting that scene that you're looking at necessarily. They're painting that photograph of that scene. And the idea of the image having an objectness to it. So sometimes when I collect these images and then print them out, they might hang around the studio for a while. And I get kind of attached to who those people might be. And I want it a very specific record of their shape. But I know that I can't capture who they really are um, because I don't know them. And, there's, and, I, and I also am not making a cartoon of uh, who these people are. It's not just a characterization. So I think that that's maybe what comes to your point of them becoming a kind of symbol. Um, they are an individual, and then they are also a printed object of that individual, and then they are sort of everyone, or the potential of everyone. Yeah, like it's it's somewhat nondescript enough to be a multitude. Rather, you know, rather than a specific, but it, there still holds that semblance of of a specific. Like, you they know, each moment. have unique. They each have unique bodies, and I love the, you know, all the different shapes and sizes. I want just everyone to be included in my work, and so I'm always just seeking out the. Yeah, I just love all the different shapes. Well, all the bumps. That's so, so. One of my favorite, um, one of my favorite books has always been uh, *The Stranger*, and one of the things I always really loved about uh, the way, you know, but the one, you know, Albert Camus. Um, what I always yeah. loved about it was how the language was so sparse, but the language it was at the same time it was the 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 words were perfect just enough to give you uh, like a, a bare bones, but somehow it was able to really stimulate your imagination to create a very vivid, vivid image around all of it. And I, th I think that's in a way kind of what your work seems to do as well is you add just enough to allow, people's, allow people to sort of fill in a lot of the gaps themselves you know what I mean? But it's yeah. not that it's lacking. It, it's not lacking something. It's like it's just enough is there for it to really be something in someone's mind, but at the same time, allow them to add to it. And I thank um, you. Yeah. Well, you know, it's 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 in, it's incredible work, and it, and it stands out quite a bit. And um, I, I there was one question that I did ha have in regards to it um, very specifically, and that is. Um, what was the reasoning behind making the eyes blank? Because it, it reminds me of like Modigliani. And I didn't know right. if there was a... Yeah, I, I, I like how he treats the eyes. I was... So I had mentioned Wesselman earlier, and Wesselman will just not paint the face at all, or sometimes just the lips and mouth. But I, um, I knew that I wanted to use these images I was collecting, but there is a problem for me of the face, which is that if you are drawing the face too carefully, it just looked weird. Um, or you were dealing, having to deal with expression, which would change uh, the 
the focus of the piece. And so I was um, just struck by uh, old comics. So like the Orphan Annie comics or... Oh, yeah. I think that the maybe some little Nemo or something, there was like... Or Nemo in Slumberland or one of those sort of older comics where it's just this little gesture, this little flip that becomes the eye was enough to give you a sense of form um, and you didn't really have to describe it any further. And so over the, you know, it's evolved over the years. And I think that I'm always wondering, like, you know, I, I will attempt to, to do fully realized eyes or um, do other, some other solution, but it, it just really, I enjoy doing it that way. And so again, it's that thing where you want to go to the studio and do it just the way you want to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm going to the studio, I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> Cause I can. Yeah. As you're, as you go through all these images and especially with your background, you know, it, it being more probably liberal than most in terms of nudity and sexuality, um, where do you really distinguish between uh, pornography and nude art? I think intention. I think that um, the uh, the reason why something is made um, has a lot to do with it. Certainly, things can be moved into different t- contexts and have sort of a different feel. <clears throat> but I think why something is made, and I. I am extremely fascinated by the the ways that pornography has been made over, you know, centuries, going back many centuries, thousands of years. Um, but I did get an opportunity to meet someone that makes the sort of primary pornography, and I felt it's a it's a different approach, I think, to um, making than what I do. I um, I think I assemble the space in a different way. I think um, no, I guess I'm I'm I'm, get, I'm losing track about the question here. No, that's okay. <laughs> I think it's become very blurry for sure in the last few years of the way that the accessibility and the way that we are barra- the barrage of images that we live with every single day. Yeah. Um, and the way that pornography has entered the mainstream, or that more maybe the accessibility of these images for sure. I think that there's a kind of out of date thing that happens where you look at a pornographic image from say the early 20th century and it almost takes on a kind of ephemera quality to it where you can't really imagine someone getting like aroused by this image. It has a more historical artifact quality to it. Mm-hmm. And maybe it all eventually turns into that. Um, yeah, I, you know. I've definitely, I know I've wondered the same thing because you'll see something that will be, you know, porn, what was considered a pornographic image from 1920 or something like that. And it'd be, you know, even a photograph. And, and you look at it and go, that doesn't look like pornography at all, you know, which, and it, and it does make you wonder, well, will, what we consider to be pornography, will that be pornography or yeah, where is that line? 
I, I guess, yeah. you know, and, and it's obviously it's only, it's only speculative, but it, I think it is an interesting point because especially even to differentiate between what pornography and art is, because there's, it can be, it can be a gray area. And sometimes, you know, there are artists who very much like to play with that line. And, you know, I think rightfully so, but you know, I, the, the question that always kind of re- is kind of goes through my head is there does seem to be a distinction between art and bete- between pornography. I don't know if I have a good answer to that, but I, I almost wonder what, you know, like in regards to nude art, why is nude art important? I don't, I don't know if you had a, a, maybe a, a comment or a thought on that, because that's, that's something that, you know, I really want to try to explore. Yeah, I think it's just about our, our humanness, our obsession with ourselves. <laughs> we, uh, we just, uh, we love examining one another. And there's so many stories that can be told using all of these bodies. I think it's just important because it's us. And hopefully we will survive <laughs> in some form. Well, do you think that it does relate to, um, you know, sexuality very much relates to our sur- our survival, you know, for, even from an evolutionary perspective? Um, do, for do you now. Think- yeah, that's yeah, true. For, for now. I mean, yeah. I think that I'm a science fiction enthusiast, and I I definitely have read books that suggest, you know, it's not necessary. Um, maybe 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 a future Homo sapien will not be using sex in the same way that we do now. That's true. I don't know. Yeah, with technology. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think I just as a, the human form is immensely beautiful and uh, in, in, in every way, just in every way. Do you, um, do you think that there are legitimate moral, um, I guess, objections to utilizing nudity? Or I guess, you know, a better question for you might be, what has been the best argument you've heard? against using nudity or sexuality? Well, you know, our brains are forming well into our 20s. And um, this shit is confusing. And I think that young people, including myself, you engage with it too soon. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, and of course, you're, I mean, like, you want to. Like, so no one's going to stop you. Um, but I think that that would be, it's just like, everyone should just take it slow. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that very much, our biological nature seems, is conflicting with our, uh, I guess, our social existence. Cause, yes. <laughs> cause, yes. Uh, yeah, it's because now, I mean, you know, most of the people that, that you meet now, they're not really getting into serious relationships and, and having kids until they're, you know, 30. 30s. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like because I, th- I think it's just society has become so complex. Learning how to navigate um, our environment has just, it keeps being pushed back more and more. You know, so someone yeah. in their early 20s and mid, even in mid 20s, it's, you really almost don't kind of know who you are until you're, you're, you're most people are in their later 20s. And that obviously doesn't go for everybody, but it's like, yeah. wait a little bit who you are in your early 20s. 
is going to be is quite a bit different than you who who you are going to be 10 years from now and i think probably by the time you know you hit 30 you've kind of have settled a little bit and you have an identity you know with within the grand scheme of things a little bit but um yeah to me it seems to be related to that yes yes i think there was one point we were talking about kind of just before that about uh Oh yeah, the the sort of the art and pornography. One of the things as I collect images is the difference between like a professionally made image and a homemade made image. And I find that the professional made image is just not appealing in any way. And I'm really struck by this so as I'm looking through images, and I don't use these images, but they're really amazing to see if someone who's kind of take a picture of themselves or it's clearly like someone that they're close with. And the image is kind of bad, kind of blurry, um, and the light not right. And I just find those to be the, the most erotic pornography that exists. The amateur ones? Yeah, kind of blurry and like quite folk, like just bad lighting composed. and yeah, all incandescent lighting. And yeah, almost just like a quick snapshot yeah. from someone who didn't know what they were doing. It was just totally utilitarian. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I think that's that even somewhat speaks to the fact that so much of our lives have become so curated. And it seems that people more and more are just trying to find places that they can really see someone human. I I, I even think of, for example, Instagram, like um, think of how much people's actual pages seem to, people don't seem to be interacting with them as much as they do stories, as an example. Right. Yes. And I think it's because it has to do with that, that curated aspect know you just can't it's a lot more difficult and then i think once people start figuring out in mass how to make that uh, this their stories look super polished i think the platform will change then it'll change again (laughs) yeah it'll change again agreed agreed yeah well grant i need to wrap it up i'm sorry to say i have to get ready to get my child no i'm sorry i i didn't ask you beforehand how you know how much time you had i apologize for that it's good. I didn't realize how, how much time. So it's, yeah, it's definitely time for me to wrap up. No, but uh, no, maybe you can um, just tell people where, where you want them to find you. And uh, I know you, I think Instagram interested. is Instagram is where I like to be found. My, my website is sort of a kind of business card. Basically it doesn't really change very often, but well, no, I can do, I mean, I can do a, a wrap up question if you want. I don't want to just hang up on you. Um, I just, uh, I realized, I, I actually hadn't looked at the time and then I realized. What time it was. Yeah. So, um, I, the big, the, I guess the question that I've been kind of asking everyone, just wanting to know what it is that you feel you can contribute positively to the world that is unique to you. Well, separate from art, I'm, you know, learning how to be a, a, a good dad and, and, and a good husband, good friend, all of those things. I think that, um, Having a child and being an artist is a really exciting thing. Having her in and out of the studio and talking about all of these things and 
I think that art making is not just about going in and making some art. You, it's, there's a whole sort of life that's involved with it about that that you sort of view everything through making, and so I'm excited to share this with another generation. The the way that if if you have an idea, you you can just go make that idea happen. Um, and and we're pretty crafty here, so there, there's always we're always working with our hands, doing growing something, baking something, painting something. And uh, I I really want to share that or instill that you don't have to go out and buy everything. You can just like you can make it work yourself here in in your own place, and that's really fun. I I think in a larger sense, I just love sharing all these images that are at everybody's fingertips. Everybody can kind of see these images. You know, and many of these images go from a smartphone to a website. And I like the idea that maybe one of these images in one of my paintings may be the only time that they're out in the analog world. And I kind of like that as a, even though that no one will ever know who they are and probably the people that are in the subject will never know that they were in a painting. Um, they are in a painting. Yeah, that's, that's great. No, I, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate all your time uh, yeah. and talking to me and, and being open and it, it means a lot to me and it's hopefully this will stay be in the archives you know for like you said future generations to be able to look back on and i think your your work definitely will so hopefully this will be a positive reference point for others and as well as you so i, I really appreciate everything you've done here thank you grant and come visit portland yeah absolutely thank you to everyone that has listened as well as to my guest dan glubizi if you enjoyed this episode and others i would love to hear your feedback as well as any suggestions you might have you can contact me at grant at gtrimble.com that's g-r-a-n-t at g-t-r-i-m-b-l-e.com or visit my website for show notes at gtrimble.com then click the podcast link don't forget to follow dan on instagram at dan glubizi that's d-a-n-g-l-u-i-b-i-z-z-i as well as my IG, that's gtrimble underscore photo. If you enjoyed this podcast, please tell your loved ones and show your support by clicking the subscribe button and leaving a review. Don't forget to spread the word. 